my fam. It's so good to be back to Down to Brown. It's not like I've been gone for this whole sabbatical. It's been two weeks, but I'm a girl who really struggles to relax. And two weeks feels like a very long time. I don't know about you guys, but if you're one of those people who knows how to relax, enjoys a day of leisure, please give me notes on how to do that because I am definitely one of those people who struggles. Um, I'm certainly a children of immigrants in the sense slowing down, not achieving, not being a productive is very difficult for me. And I am sure there are a gazillion tweets slash posts out there on Brown Girl Therapy that address this, which I need to reread because I really suffer from, I need to constantly be doing something or else what's my life amounting to syndrome. And the last two weeks, I literally could not because I came home from my trip from New York. Um, I'm in a very lucky situation right now. I'm very grateful, um, the privilege of being fun employed between jobs. And so I went to that trip, came back, got really sick with not COVID, um, which also felt kind of strangely nice to be like, I'm just regular sick and I'm not afraid for infecting society. Um, and took some rest, um, grew really bored, very frustrated, um, really was a bother to my fiance. I was like, this is your job to entertain me. So it was a delight to live with. Um, anyway, fast forward, here we are and we're releasing our episode, but I did have to say it was great to acknowledge the fact that I have this need to constantly work, work, work. Um, but I also realized that I don't want that forced work ethic to show up in my down to brown work. And so that's why I gave it a break too, because I don't think you guys should hear from me if my heart's not fully in it too. Um, And so I thank you again for always your time and your support and your community. And I take it very seriously. That being said, I'm so excited to come back with this episode with Sahil. You might recognize them from Brown Girl Mag. Um, They're an editor for Brown Boy, um, the section for Brown Boy, and also is starting an MFA um, for creative writing in the summer. Um, Also is a Fulbright Scholar, also just came back from Karachi, Pakistan to become better learned in their identity of Pagnari. Um, they'll talk about it much more in the podcast episode. I spent so much of my life searching for belonging, and I would argue I was doing this as well much into my adulthood, probably up until a week or two ago. And I honestly came to the realization that belonging may actually be a negative thing. Mm-hmm. It may actually be the absence of freedom. Like I'm really thinking of like if if you belong to something or something belongs to you, you're tethered to it. And I don't know if I want wow. to be tethered to things. I kind of just want to be like a like a a seed floating in the wind or whatever it might be, you know? Like But what I adore most about Sahil is that they use their knowledge to spread awareness, to better educate, to help their communities. And I really, really appreciated the conversation we had today because in some way it both echoes um, and amplifies what we talk about in Down to Brown of freeing ourselves from the pressures of American and South Asian identities, stigmas and all the norms and etc. But it also kind of contradicts it too. And so this is what I mean by that. In this conversation, we really challenge the concept of belonging. And we have often thought that belonging is actually a good thing, right? And don't worry, I'm not about to say like, "Er, actually it's wrong. I was going to say that it can be both good and bad. And this duality, what I mean by this is that belonging can be really wonderful when we feel that connection to something beyond us and also about us where we feel like we're seen understood we're with our people with our environment but then it can also be a double-edged sword when we want to belong so badly that maybe we might make decisions or live our lives in a way that is goes against the current of where we're trying to take ourselves intuitively so all that to say is that Sahil and I challenge the notion of belonging and whether that can, by belonging, can you truly be free? And so this is just a good little mind riddle for us to play. 
Um, but would be curious about your thoughts around whether there is a polarity to yes or no belonging. So today, Sahil talks to me about a lot and enlightened me in life. With that, what does Sahil talk to me about? Well, a shit ton. I learn so much from them. So we talk about this concept. We start with this journey of who am I? Who am I becoming? The transformation and the pain and beauty to it. But then we really get into the power of language and how important it can be in shaping someone. You know, today we can all think of someone who has said in our lives, and I, I mean at least one, um, everyone is so PC now. I don't know what to say. Everyone's just being so sensitive right now. We've been there, right? We have definitely heard this. But the more and more you think about it, and especially what Sahil echoes, is that it does really stay with people. And it really affects the way that they are then thinking about themselves and maybe talking about themselves to themselves. The other thing we get into is the concept of rejecting yourself to find yourself which I adore because it really gets at some of the things that we talk about in Down to Brown, which is that we might go through phases where we completely dive into our South Asian identity or an aspect of it. Maybe it's our religion or our culture or our language or our state or country. Then there are also aspects of American culture that we totally embrace. And then sometimes we reject one or the other and all of it, brings you to who you are. I think a lot of us can relate to this. And if you'd like to learn more about it, there's this fantastic book called The Namesake um, by Jhumpa Lahiri. I know, <laughs> Lahiri sounds like my first name, Lahari. So basically I'm a Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> Anyhow, the last thing I loved is Sahil's ability to talk about what learning means and sometimes that learning means to unlearn, which again, can't take credit for that, but really explains some of why people are still being challenged with the conversations we're having that really picked up momentum in 2020 in the summer. And the concept of grace, the concept of grace will come up repeatedly and it's something that we're slowly getting obsessed with. Um, I have only heard this in a Christian context growing up and I've been hearing this more and more when it comes to self-care and honestly think that a lot of our struggle with our South Asian American identity, if we showed ourselves grace for it, what would our lives look like? If we could also free ourselves, not only from those pressures and whatnot, but also the guilt and the shame that we have sometimes given ourselves for having rejected or accepted something or try to do something in the need to belong. So all that being said, I'm so excited for you to meet Sahil. They are so stimulating in the language and intellect that they bring to this conversation. So um, without further ado, Sahil. I'm here with Sahil. Welcome, Sahil. Hi, how's it going? So well. (laughs) Um, How about you? Happy Pride. Thank you. Thank you. I took a bath this morning. I got chai. I'm really excited to talk to you. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did the same minus the bath. So <laughs> good thing you're not around me to smell me. <laughs> yeah, I had some lavender salt. So I was like, let me relax before we start diving into some deep shit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I like how you do. Lavender bath salt. Some bougie morning. Well-deserved. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I've so appreciated the ways that we've connected on the path of our friend introducing us and our, you know, we so fondly think of her, um, Anila. She's so fabulous. Um, and since then, like, I've just really enjoyed talking to you and I'm so appreciative that you were um, open to coming to Down to Brown. I even like for context for people, like before a guest comes on, I send them a document and ask them just for like, okay, like, how do you think about this focus of the conversation? We talk about some questions. Um, But most of it is like, obviously, like in the moment, but like your comments, Sahil, like I was like dying. They're so overwhelmingly positive. Like, I wish I worked with you all the time, because like all your comments on the Google Doc were like, love it, love it, love it. (laughs) So no, honestly, I was really flattered. I thought it was very clear and really detailed. And I think positivity is just something we need to actively like do. So I think I just practiced that. 
And I was like, I, I was a little bit nervous because I know we had our initial conversation. And I just feel like one thing I'm also leaning into is just leaning into being a dynamic person. I think I grew up really thinking I needed to always be consistent and always be very one way and always be that way. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm kind of learning the beauty in change and the beauty in being dynamic. And so I guess my point being is that I was kind of nervous that maybe the initial document would be obsolete or not be relevant anymore. But once I looked at it, I was like, honestly, it, it like, while it was a snapshot, it was also very timeless. Oh my gosh, thank you. And I love how you set the stage. Honestly, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about is the dynamic nature of our lives, especially because when we come from multiple identities, including South Asian, there is a little bit of like, you grow up with the image and these, um, not even images, multiple messages coming at you from everywhere, being like, this is how you should be. This is how you should be. And then we start to get older. And obviously there's this dissonance that happens. You couple in the like fuckery of different cultures that you're in. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, who am I and who am I becoming? Um, so that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. But I do want to set the stage because speaking of transformation, um, this past year has been psycho. As we all know, it's, you know, we're in a very confusing, frustrating, painful, optimistic time. Um, I want to say in the U.S., but obviously the world, um, even our counterparts in South Asia are suffering right now from some of the COVID, um, you know, things that have evolved. So I would love to just start with asking you, what has the last year been like for you? I think I only really put words to it yesterday during one of my Brown Boy meetings with Brown Girl Magazine. We have weekly meetings and we talked about kind of in unfurling of butterfly wings as a, mm -hmm. as a group. And I think that's kind of what my year has been, which sounds a little bit selfish perhaps, or kind of self, self maybe just kind of, egotistical. But one thing I'm learning is self-centering behavior is actually kind of necessary in our lives to some yes. degree, even though we maybe have been decentered over time. And so it feels a little bit, we don't have language for it, but this year has obviously been challenging. And I just feel like even on a cellular, like physical body level, like I feel like I'm doing this thing where I'm stretching like a butterfly with my wings outside of a cocoon for the first time. And there's obvious kind of, while the visual maybe like uh, seems to appear really beautiful, I think there's um, lack of language and also narrative around what that must actually feel like if you're mm -hmm. kind of stretching your limbs for the first time in a way that is such a beautiful display, but, but you're using muscles that maybe have not been worked before or something like that. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. Of course. No, I actually like that because I think there's a lot of it's new, it's painful, it's scary too, right? Like the end result might be beautiful that we see in the end of the day, but there is a Absolutely. process that goes into it. So I love that um, there's a type of cycle that you've mentioned in that concept. And I think the piece like that was really that resonated with me of the decentering slash self-centering because I, it's sort of like the airplane analogy where we like, you know, I think more and more people sometimes tout it, but like, if you don't put your oxygen mask yourself, like how can you help others? And I think mm -hmm. the whole self-centering is important for that reason. It's not saying like become selfish, self-centering, right? It's, it's more about take care of yourself so you can, first of all, function, be a human totally. and then actually turn around and be productive for other people too. Absolutely. And like you said, within the context of a South Asian identity or upbringing, like, we were not, and I don't want to say we, because I don't know everyone's experience. So I'll, I'll yes, personalize. Good flag, yeah. I was not educated on anything, on the act of doing anything selfish in a positive way. Like that was not part of my upbringing, I guess you could say. So anytime that I voiced my own needs or I saw people around me voicing their own needs, it was labeled as something very, very negative, mm -hmm. very Western, very individualistic, very selfish, very um, how dare you, how could you, that type of thing. And so I think as an adult, I'm kind of, I'm not departing from that because I belong to that and I own it, but I think it's a matter of figuring out what works when. And I think with that said, obviously COVID, as you mentioned, was a societal outbreak. It, it affected everyone to, in every corner. And so 
I think with that social effect, there needs to be some type of individual response. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, yeah, individual resiliency and societal resiliency work hand in hand, but there's also, they're different pockets, you know? And I think as as I moved to New York, just let's say like five months before the pandemic hit, maybe six months, something like that. And so, and this is a place where I've really like grown and I've been provided a lot of opportunity and I've been uh, challenging myself by switching into different uh, professions and things like that. So, and I've been meeting so many people who validated and affirmed my identity. And, and so it's been a really beautiful journey, but I think um, in beauty, there's always pain and sorrow. And I think those emotions kind of just really like are yin and yang to each other. And um, that's something that I'm that I'm just feeling constantly. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. Um, And actually, on that note, you started to touch on the piece of, you know, growing up with our unique upbringings, of course, not everyone's is the same. Um, And we do struggle with this underlying tension, though, of this American assimilation and South Asian norms, stigmas, expectations, which is what Down to Brown is about, is unpacking that and how we free ourselves But, you know, there comes a moment where we all start to feel that tension and maybe start to, you know, sometimes we don't know it's tension because we're too young or we don't have the words. But when did you start to feel first feel that tension in your memories um, in your own life with your own family? I've been doing a lot of reading recently on hyphenated identities, whatever you want to call them, especially queer hyphenated identities. And one pattern I keep seeing is that a lot of people are writing like, I always knew, I always knew. And for me, there's so much to be said about the wisdom and intuition of a child mm-hmm. that goes untapped and kind of neglected. Yeah. And so I always knew. Can I ask like what that means? Yeah. I feel like when you ask, so when you ask me the question, I feel like I'm then asked to go into childhood Sahil and yeah. kind of really figure out what wisdom was happening there. And I have so many stories. So in terms of race and ethnicity and color, I was called the N-word in sixth grade uh, Mm. on the, I guess, like after school and like the play structure or whatever. And the only teacher whose door was open was a white teacher who I didn't particularly vibe with, but he was always around. So I was like, let me just go and I just knew I needed to tell someone because it it was a very perplexing, I I don't know, kind of like a ordeal. Yeah, of course. And I had so many thoughts. I knew it wasn't right, but I also knew there was like there was it had racial kind of like how do I phrase it kind of there was like a negative association you know they're calling you that like negatively yeah and it was a problem on multiple levels because I was also then trying to figure out what that word means in relation to me and I was just in sixth grade you know what I mean and so I don't know how that ended up uh getting kind of resolved but basically it stuck with me, I guess is my point. And I think that's when I realized color is something that like is shaped in our world and that it's, and I'm part of the world. I think that's when I realized that tension because honestly, most of my childhood, I'm going to keep it real with you. Most of my childhood, I was pretty weird. I was just like (laughs) doing my own thing. A lot of people thought it was like, I don't know, they had all these words for me, just like weird, loner, I don't know, like annoying, like all these strange words. But at the end of the day, I think it was just like a, I had gifts that maybe did not make sense within the context I was growing up in. So I spent a lot of my childhood just thinking about where, why does the world exist? Where do people come from? And what, like, are we supposed to do in our life, kind of? Yeah, And so they were big philosophical questions that I would always just be like thinking about. And I think that's, in some ways, I don't know that other people around me were thinking those same things. So I, it definitely like set me apart in some ways. Absolutely. When it comes to my queer identity, I have a, and my, my pronouns are they, them now, back then they were he, him, his. Mm-hmm. And so I had a experience with an aunt who came from, actually an aunt and her daughter who came from India and they were visiting us. And for some reason, I was just being foolish. And I put like, you know, those McDonald's play balls from those pits? Yes. We had some at home. Don't ask me why. But I put some of them <laughs> into my shirt. And I started like running around the house. 
And I just remember the look. So I put two of them, just, I guess, emulating breasts. But at the time, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have vocalized it that way. I don't really know what I was doing. But I think there was music playing and I was just doing what I thought was fun. And I just remember, and it wasn't the older auntie, interestingly. She just looked at me and was like, oh, Sahil's just chilling, whatever, no big <laughs> deal. But it was the, her daughter, who at the time was probably oh. on, only in her 20s. I will never forget the look that she on her face where she just looked at me and it was just like, mortified and she, like I clearly knew that whatever I was doing was like causing her some type of anguish you know mm-hmm. and so I stopped but it was never vocalized it was never like not like that feeling was never given words I was only able to see the feeling on her face and I will never unlearn the look on her face you know absolutely I feel like that's so um, poignant because the piece of especially how you talked about like accessing that child wisdom, I think that's why later now, you know, I I meet some people who really appeal to that um, inner child speaking, which is like a way that you can basically self-talk, right? Like you, you access your inner child and talk to that to shape how you now talk to yourself as an adult. Um, and to your point about, you know, going back to access that, I think that piece is like children are actually quite perceptive in a way that we obviously like later in life, we're still talking about things that we experience as like five-year-olds sometimes or six-year-olds and they clearly make an impression. So to me, what you described, like, I am sorry, uh, you know, that you experienced that because it's totally like unfair to have a child have that feeling of like discomfort in that woman's eyes. And it's interesting that you said, like, it's not even the auntie, it's the daughter. And I wonder how much internalization she's done of those messages in our community that like, what's right, quote, or what's wrong, quote. Um, Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And even the piece about the N word, I feel like, to your point about the multiple levels of like, fucked up, um, the when people call, you know, especially South Asians, like if they get called the N word, the point isn't to be like, also like, wait, but I'm South Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It's problematic, that's not, right? that's like, not the issue at hand. Yeah. 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 Exactly. But you're realizing like, oh shit, this is how people experience the world. I am considered an other. And I think that's why it's really traumatizing. Um, and so that that's a lot to experience where you start to realize like, wait, uh, who, who, how are people seeing me? Because to your point, when you grow up out of context also of the like maybe like what matches and aligns with what our society wants to see it can be really stressful and I don't know about you but it feels like you at least I related to that in the sense like the words when you said the words used to describe me right for me it was like you're too much you know you like you're very difficult you're very bossy Mm. um and um, like Lahari is just always going to like make something super challenging. She always just so restless. So these terms that I was like, wait, what is wrong with me? You know, and that's how mm-hmm. I talk to myself. How did you talk to yourself because of those words being used? Because, you know, at that young age, it's sometimes hard to discern. Like, you know, now we can be like, fuck, yeah, I'm my own person and I'm proud. But like back then we might be like, what? What's why am I different from what they want me to be? And I do depend on them for like care and love. <laughs> no, totally. I always wanted to fit in. I didn't really understand the cool uncool dichotomy that every school setting seemed to have, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to fit in. And so I sought friendship, but I also knew that I was different. Like I I knew that I was not heterosexual heteronormative. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily practice it and in such an expressive way that I do now yeah. because I didn't have I didn't feel the comfort of the people around me. What age do you think you knew that consciously? Birth. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Honestly, like, yeah, my earliest, earliest, earliest memories, like, like in eighth grade, every day, the, uh, my history teacher would call me a ladies man every day. (laughs) Oh, Sahil hangs out with all the girls on campus. He's such a lady man. And so like he lacked language and also he violently oppressed me with his language publicly in reality that's what he was doing because he lacked language, but also awareness that that there can be more possible identities than just lady man, because that functions in a very heteronormative um, world. (laughs) And also like he had no like business, like labeling me as such because it also limited any other possibilities for me. And so, so those were just your, and he did this every day, mind you. So it was like very perplexing for me. And so it was in sixth and seventh grade, no, sorry, seventh and eighth grade, where I really started moving away from South Asian anything 
And I started moving towards white, black, Latinx. And those were my friends at my school. And I, um, yeah, that was just, that was how I did it. So I really moved away from South Asian, whatever, to just figure out who the fuck I am, you know, and that traveled with me through college. So I became pretty fluent in Spanish. I did really well in Spanish language classes in my middle school and high school. And then in college, I ended up studying abroad in Quito and Ecuador for a year. Mm -hmm. And I became really fluent. Also in Ecuador, they have a pretty, what people consider, and there's no such thing as a neutral accent, but they have what people could consider a neutral accent when it comes to the Spanish speaking world, just because it's not any extreme of anything. So I was able to really maneuver myself in that world very comfortably, blending in because of my ambiguous brownness and also having relationships in the Spanish language where when I knew nothing would linguistically reach my parents or my family or my extended family or anything like that. So for me, kind of, I approximated myself to the, and back then we weren't using the term Latinx, but basically I approximated myself to that culture because linguistically I had a bridge and an entry point into it. So I felt like I could put words to who I was and Mm -hmm. that those words would never be used against me. I didn't have that with the South Asian community, first of all, because everything seemed so um, uninviting to me to begin with. Any Mm. parties I would go to, all the boys would go to one room and play video games. All the girls would go to one room and do whatever the girls would do, whether it was inside or outside or whatever. But boys were always playing video games. I hate video games. I've never liked them. I never wanted to really, I found them to be a waste of time. They didn't do anything for me. And so I would just follow my older sister wherever she went. And I just really was just vibing with the girls. Mind you, there was nothing in between that category. I was the in-between in those categories. Yeah. So like, I felt very, there wasn't space for me in South Asian-ness. Not to say there was space for me in the Latinx community, but I was more comfortably able to forge that. Mm -hmm. And without fear of anything traveling back to my family. And it's really funny because I actually met with a South Asian gay person in New York this weekend. We just got coffee together and he had a very similar story. And he doesn't speak Telugu or Hindi or any South Asian language in the same way that I'm not fluent in any of the South Asian languages. So I felt like there's also some type of, I don't want to go as so far as to say language trauma, but I would say there's language guilt in that, who are we at the end of the day? And mm-hmm. so to answer your question in a really long-winded way, is I spent so much of my life searching for belonging, and I would argue I was doing this as well much into my adulthood, probably up until a week or two ago. And I honestly came to the realization that belonging may actually be a negative thing. Mm-hmm. It may actually be the absence of freedom like I'm really thinking of like if if you belong to something or something belongs to you, you're tethered to it. And I don't know if I want wow. to be tethered to things. I kind of just want to be like a like a a seed floating in the wind or whatever it might be, you know, like or something floating in the ocean that kind of just gets to travel around and like live its life. And so that's kind of how I'm seeing things now. Um yeah. Wow. There's that is no. And you, while like you think it's long winded, like I really loved everything. Like I was just like closing my eyes and soaking it in because that is such an interesting perspective. And before people, you know, how I want to say this is like, there's a predictable way to sometimes say these things. Like um, we have been taught and because like, we're so kind of early, you know, honestly, the progress we're making with some of these conversations around diversity and inclusion are so early on, um, there's a long way to go. But for example, when I um, worked in HR, I did a lot of diversity and inclusion work. And the definition for us with inclusion is the sense of belonging, basically. Um, That's what Deloitte, like when they did a study, like kind of came up with. And um, the interesting thing about that is like, I like your point about that belongingness is like, does it also tether you and um to your piece about like bringing it back to that self-centering um to me like I want to just belong to myself um and then feel comfortable in spaces that I'm in right like whatever they are um, maybe there are some communities that you feel more uh understood and connected with like soul feels happy 
But I'm really challenged by your notion of like, what is belonging in the end of the day? So thank you for that. Because I think that's such a great question. And um, I am like, gonna like contemplate this, like over my meditation and like second cup of chai. Like later Absolutely. Today. Yes. Uh, no. And it's but... something I just came to think about recently, because I was like, why do I care about this notion of belong? And mind you, so many South Asians have been writing about it. And not only and a lot yeah. of it is also belonging to land and place. And I, I also read a lot and write a lot in the world of partition healing. And yes. so I think belong for, for so many people, be, belonging can be to land. But look at our society. Like literally, we live a lie. We steal land from people. We create societies on top of that. Mm-hmm. And then we we lie to ourselves through, like, look at the United States. Look at our Pledge of Allegiance, Ugh, yeah. our... All the songs that we are taught to think and sing, like this land is your land, this land is my, like, it's all a lie. And like, so, and and I'm a bit of a pessimist in this is I, like, I'm sure diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, it's, it's, it's the best we can do for now, perhaps. But like, I really don't know if anything can be a good thing, if it comes from ugly origins. I really don't think anything can ever get there. So I really kind of, um, I turn inward as a result. And I think it links back to what you were saying is just belonging to yourself, but then you need to do something with that equation. I feel like for me, the step is one pluralizing my myself to become myself, like who, what, where, when, what, like time periods, regions, whatever. And then also seeing just ancestral work, you know, like, and, mm-hmm. and the ancestors are not perfect, but they are there and and I take pride nonetheless, you know? So it's a matter of really figuring out what do I do now that I am in this space. And obviously we're not getting younger, we're getting older. So Mm -hmm. a lot of my work has also been figuring out my belonging to my own physical body that has been changing over time, especially during a pandemic. So it's like the idea of belonging to kind of your own, the skin you're born into that changes over time. You know, what does that even mean? And so, yeah, I guess I'm going on a ramp. But basically, I care a lot about kind of person and place porosity and what that means. I guess to take it a step further, I belong to a really small ethno-linguistic community called Bagnari. Um, mm-hmm. We grew up calling ourselves Sindhi Punjabi just because there was no one knew what Bagnari meant. And so, and I write a lot about this too, is that we are neither Sindhi nor Punjabi, nor the hyphen in between, because the, 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 I guess the line or the border between those states is not where we, the land where we are derived from. We mm-hmm. are derived from a place called Balochistan on the Western side of Pakistan and also in Iran, even Afghanistan. So basically... Like, and we've documented our journey over time. There are about 2,000 people in my community. Uh, the language is very similar to Siraiki. Um, and the recipes are very similar to Sindhi food. Mm. But we also wear karas and so, and care about Guru Nanak and all the gurus. So it's kind of like we're very, we're like, I say we're ethnically queer. And so <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah, especially in dominant I South Asian that. tropes, you know? Right. So I feel like I've always been queer in some, in many ways, not just gender, gender expression, sexuality, but nationality, time period, skin color, you know, like there's mm-hmm. so much porosity and, di- and dynamicism in the way that we move between binary categories in society. And I think that's a really, really beautiful thing. And so one, absolutely. and I cite Alok Fade Menon in this, they had a, they were featured in a podcast with Laverne Cox recently. I don't know the exact name of the podcast, but Alok talks about how trans and queer people, because we depart from one side of the binary and migrate to another side, and also fluidly, right? Not necessarily a singular migration, but maybe even a circular migration or a zigzag migration. But basically, Alok's argument was that we pose possibilities to society. And that was a really beautiful thing for me to hear, I needed to hear it at that moment in time. But I also think possibility, I, I, I and I wouldn't say critique Alok's idea, but I would, I press on the fact that possibility does not happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Possibility is a limiting and unlimited notion depending on 
social responses to it, if that makes sense. Yes. And so I, like, I'm, I'm totally cool with waking up every morning and being a possibility for the world and symbolizing possibility for the world. But at the point where I get called faggot in the street or where I get whatever might happen, you know, like whatever mm-hmm. could take place and does take place, like it's also a reminder that possibility has the, is surrounded by negative space of impossibility or seeming impossibility. So I think we need to kind of push between both, if that makes sense. Absolutely. There's so much gold in what you said, and I want to like address thoughtfully each and um, be brief about it because I have so many other follow-up questions now. But one totally. <laughs> is I completely agree with this notion of when your foundation is built on ugliness, violence, Um, and dominance, then it's hard to then really truly keep like reiterating something that was already a wrong, right? So um, even like if you remember Rick Santorum's comments recently about Native Americans and how like there was really no culture, like Americans really brought it to the States or whatever. And like, you're just like massively offensive, right? And that's just one example of multiple things. Like when we talk about change in this country, like I feel like I don't mean this in like, oh, fuck everything up. But I really do think you have to re-examine everything and change it before we can really truly align with like where we are now today as a society. (laughs) The other piece, as you mentioned, like the second piece was how you moved away from South Asian, um, kind of your South Asian identity for a while. And I thought I really wanted to address that because often in our lives, when we do something like that, where we leave an identity that perhaps we were born into, um, we tend to get a lot of crap for that too. I think people will say like, you know, you're betraying it or it's not good enough for you. Like, you know, I, there's certainly, I'm sure a lot of us can relate. Like when you don't do something that fits that way, there's always that uncle around you with that comment or even your parents or yourself for that, like guilt you feel. And I think it is important to kind of embrace sometimes different places that you might see a version of yourself, because I feel like what you're getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there is no one way to be. So when we ask that question of who am I, I think we tend to be, we're used to the notion of like, we need to have like a elevator pitch of who I am. And it gives me comfort. It's like a pacifier, like, okay, I'm these things, check, check, check. But What if we entertain the notion of like, we are not like, you know, one person ever, Um, we might Mm -hmm. be, you know, today, I might be one version of me, and another, you know, part of me will come out the next day. But it's all Mm -hmm. still me, right. Um, And so I love your piece about possibility, because to me, it actually gives more comfort in the fact that you don't have to keep being think that's why we get like there's a dissonance because you're like oh shit like I'm you know I don't feel like myself today I don't feel like myself today or like you know mm, like next week yeah. you're like and you're like maybe that is okay because this is still like fundamentally me but I'm allowed to go through different evolutions iterations maybe one day different from the next so the reason I bring that up is because you know like I feel like what you're perhaps getting at again correct me if I'm wrong is um it, it's almost like we meet different points of ourselves in um, different versions of ourselves at different points in time. Um, And is that something that you, especially like if that, you know, you're like, yes. Um, What was that journey like? Especially like, you know, you've talked about it for yourself, but how about your family? Because, you know, we are really like, you know, that is our foundation. And how did your family experience your self-examining and ebb and flow with your identity? Totally. Um, okay. So you mentioned guilt, I believe. And so, Mm -hmm. and I see a lot of, I feel like South Asian culture, if we were to characterize it in a negative way, in three words, it would be guilt, shame, and fear. And those are just all emotions that feed into each other. And something I've been working to do is just anytime I'm feeling any of those emotions or even a mixture of those emotions, I immediately stop myself and I just practice grace. And that might be practicing grace with myself, with someone around me, with society at large, with whatever's happening at that moment in time. And I don't know that I was, I don't know that this concept exists, at least in the context that I grew up in. And I kind of talked about that in the beginning of our chat, but basically, yeah, I think grace is something I'm learning 
over time of what that even means. I don't know if there's a word in this for grace in Hindi. I don't know if the notion of grace exists in Hinduism or other South Asian religions. I personally grew up in a Hindu context, like vaguely Hindu context, but I just didn't have access to this concept. I like there was a girl named Grace in our middle school, and we always. I we only knew how to define grace as like being fit like bodily graceful as a dancer with your physical body but I'm <laughs> trying so as an adult I'm trying to really learn the the notion of being graceful with emotion and graceful with with everything inside of you that is not the body you know mm-hmm. and so when it comes to my family I really do appreciate them for their patience um but I also know that Learning is, I feel, I feel like in society, everyone's trying to learn right now. Post, 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 share, uh, Audrey Lord, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, like sh- learn, learn, learn. I feel like we would benefit and this might just be me, but I really feel like we would benefit in just pausing and focusing on unlearning before we focus on learning or even some outward expression of learning that that we seem to be seeing. I completely agree. Yeah, like when it comes to my parents in particular, like, because unlearning is harder than Mm -hmm. learning. And I don't think they're ready to unlearn yet. They've told me that in action, in, in commentary. And I just give them grace. Like I'm not willing to go down that journey with them until they're ready. Um. And that's just that, you yeah. know? What's so an like, example of something like that that came up recently? Yeah. So I'll just, so my partner, love him. His name is Matthew. He's from Louisiana, black, Matthew. African-American. Mm-hmm. Yes. Love Matthew. Kisses to Matthew. <laughs> um, we, he was supposed to come and visit my family for the first time last at the end of last year. And he had a COVID scare. Honestly, it ended up being a divine intervention because he didn't even have COVID but it prevented him from getting on a plane that would have come to see my family. In that time, I was having hard talks with them about anything and everything, my identity as a queer person, things going on nationally, things going on in the South Asian subcontext, everything. And there were moments when my parents just did not, like my, there was a moment when my dad referred to slavery as ancient history. Mm. There was a moment when my mom said that there's no way she could be racist because she thinks Rihanna's beautiful and Lady Gaga's ugly. Like it was just like really Oof. just things that did not make sense to me. Um, my and mind you, my mom was was simultaneously claiming that she felt the white race was the most beautiful race in the world, but that had nothing to do with her growing up in a racist context. Or a context that valued racism. <laughs> yeah, like, of course, like there, and, and she was so married to her, both of them, actually, they were so married to I, their identities as non-racist that I just knew that unlearning was not a part of the picture, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was just, and I told them, I was like, you are not in a place of privilege yet to meet my partner. And I hope that changes one day. Mm-hmm. And so that is an example of it, you know, where... And, and it's, and ironically, it's not about queerness because when it comes to queerness, they'll just say like, yes, yes, Sahil, yes, yes. Like whatever I say, like I can be an authority on that. They won't let, they won't give me the benefit of the doubt of being an authority on other topics mm. and I, and race being one of them. And that is a huge issue that we have to tackle in our society. And it really scarred me because it really made me wonder when will my parents have a relationship with my partner maybe never you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and so that's um something that 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 hurts me and that uh but I'm not willing to let him go through that you know like that's not why he's in my life and I'm in, in his so sometimes you just have to really create boundaries and like and and grace also is part of that right you you're graceful with yourself so you're creating this boundary. You need to communicate the boundary. I think yes. that's another thing we're not doing enough of in our society is like learning how to communicate boundaries. Um, and I think that's actually the difference between selfishness and self-centering. Yes. Is that you you owe honesty and transparency to the people around you so that they can grow. And if you don't give that them that through communicative uh, language, then it's more of a wall than a bridge, you know? That's so so, interesting because I feel like I I'm like smiling because I, I I 
subscribe to that in my bones, but I tend to get a lot of crap sometimes from my family. Like, why do you even bother? Like, don't try to change. They're not going to change, you know, like it's like, it's on you basically for keep mm-hmm. keeping it real. Um, and yeah. it's just like a, to me, I'm like, life is short. Like you, you got to say what you, you know, like I want to be honest and transparent because the hope is that one day, like even what I heard from you is like the hope is one day that your parents can meet your partner in a way that is welcoming to both. But in the meantime, like I really appreciated that you protected your partner too from, you know, that that is something that a lot of interracial couples, like, you know, I've heard other examples too, where like they meet the family when they're not ready. And it, it can be very damaging for that person, right? So it's a lot to put on that partner as well. Um, and also for your own relationship with your parents. So I think that's a really impressive boundary to draw. Um, and I think your point about unlearning learning, there's like so much to say about that because it, to me, it's almost like, you know, you have to be willing to go backward to go forward, but people just want to kind of keep moving on. Right. And like, you'll kind of yeah. just like tidy up the mess really quickly and be like, no, 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 I'm fine though. Like I'm not, I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. Like I'm not this. And like the denial itself, I think is where we just get stuck in like quicksand yeah. and like we can't really actually make progress. So yeah. to your point, like there's so much like even the comments your mom said, and I don't mean to pick on her, like this is something that very much like I have similar conversations with my own parents, um, especially my dad, like, and you know, there's a reason why they say that too. Like that's where I give grace to them to your point of like, they have grown up in a society too, that didn't challenge like the concept of unlearning wasn't even an option sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. And for survival, maybe they internalize some of these messages that are not very positively serving or compassionate or true. And um, but now for them to have to at that age unlearn, I just wonder what it takes. Right. Because like there's always I don't know if you feel this way, but like I I get a lot of like for my family, like people just don't change. Stop trying to change them. And I'm like, that implies that like, I'm trying to control them or something. And I'm like, I'm not trying to change them for my benefit. Like, it's because mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm gonna just say it like stupidly, but I'm like, but it's wrong to be racist. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. So like, I don't know. Like, how do you how do you address that? I mean, I'm not immune to it. My partner deals with all my bullshit as well, and we all I also deal with his. You know, like mm-hmm. we come from different cultural contexts, and we bring that to the table. But we but there's a trade off, and we talk about it, and we both have something to gain from it because we're growing together, you know? And I I fundamentally believe I was born with the tools I need to be the best version of myself, those tools will be sharpened and cleaned and, and used over time in meaningful ways. But I was I firmly believe I was I was born into the culture that gave me everything I needed. So the way that I'm able to alchemize all this is that like, I don't know, I grew up knowing that reincarnation is a thing. Mm -hmm. It it was, it is a truth. Like that is what I know because that is what I grew up knowing, you know, and that is how it would shape me. So I know if I'm not having these conversations or rather if this, the conversations are not going the way that I would like them to go with my parents and whatever, like, in this lifetime, it's not the be all end all. Mm -hmm. Like life is cyclical, things change over time. And I'll be back doing the fight, you know, and so will they, you know, so it's kind of just like, I kind of view it in that way that and I'm also just learning how to slow down, you know, like, if we rush, 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 our societal cleanse, it's not going to be cleansing, you know, and I think right now, there's so much rush to to just um, come off as not racist when in reality we need to rush to figure out the racism that lives inside of us, the sexism that lives inside Mm -hmm. of us, all of that. And I think it's, it's about going into our past experiences. Like one big reason I approximated myself to the, like, I guess, Latin American studies for lack of a better term is because I was in school and I was trying to figure out what to do with my career, my future, I got close to a white woman who was an anthropologist or no, an archaeologist on my school campus. And we had a conversation and she was basically just like, oh, like way too many people in academia try to uh, involve themselves in me search. But in reality, we all need to do, do be doing research. Like if I just studied myself, then no, I wouldn't learn anything and the society would not be better. 
but so this is why I'm picking to study archaeology in Latin America. And she said it very like matter of factly. And I was, I didn't have a brain at the time to really critique that. I, I took it as law and mm-hmm. I kind of took it as, as advice that would help me figure out how to be me at a better level. In reality, it was total bullshit. And like, especially the irony of a white lady being in Latin America and saying that a hundred percent. And mind you, I told you I come from uh, my my identity is Bagnari. We just got a Wikipedia page this year. We have a YouTube video uh, like channel. And so we're like we're at and we have a website where we write about our own um, narratives. The reason we were able to remain somewhat unified as a community is because after partition, uh, there there was like a colony in, in Bombay in 1947, 1948. One of the wealthier people of our community was able to find land and basically was like, if you can't afford the like living here, you need to pay it back over time. But for now, you can all stay here. So like mm. u- unification was really important for my community. And I think maybe for many communities, obviously partition was not conducive to unif- unification. But in my case, like, and this is why I draw from my ancestors, they found a way, you know, mm-hmm. and like, I have to celebrate that. And like, but with that said, me search is what I exactly should have been doing. Yes. At that point in time, but I was deprived of it because I thought it was not a reasonable option for me. She basically made it seem like I would not have any opportunities moving forward in in academia if I chose to get a Fulbright grant to go to India or Pakistan and learn about my heritage. She she basically made it sound like I would get denied. If I applied for a master's or PhD to study Bagnari identity, she made it sound like I would not get accepted, Mm. you know? And so it was really problematic. And I'm happy to say like May just passed and it it's, um, I just turned in my thesis at Columbia's Teachers College and it's focused on my Bagnari identity. And I was able to interview a lot of elders in my community. I was doing part, quote unquote participant observation in our active WhatsApp groups and our Facebook groups called Bugnaris and the Americas and Bugnaris Worldwide. So it was like really interesting. But mind you, unification does not exist. And I was also forced, quote unquote forced, to do my research uh, being out, the only person in my community who's out as an LGBTQIA plus person. And I was outed by my sister. She did it with good intention, but she did it without my knowledge and awareness of it. Mm. And so I had to carry out my research, basically really just being myself. It was a really beautiful thing that I don't regret, but it wasn't on my terms, which no. was really unsettling and kind of goes back to the whole like butterfly wings butterfly <laughs> yes. yeah exactly like i was page. like these <laughs> i was just like these muscles are gonna have to be flexed right now i don't i've never even used these muscles before you know mm-hmm. so it was so I, I guess i can back up a little bit my brother outed me to my dad and then outed me to my mom on separate occasions i wouldn't say he did it with negative intention but he did it very mindlessly and a little bit um, just kind of thinking it was just a joke or whatever. Mm. And my sister then outed me to our entire community on Facebook because I was featured in uh, Brown Girl Mag's first ever print anthology called Untold. And so she just basically did like an older sister, I'm so proud of Sahil posting yeah. on Facebook, um, purchase the anthology here, support my siblings' work, blah, blah, blah. It was really good intention. Yeah, well intended. Yeah, well intended. But my point being is like, I then really needed, I became the face in my community for the LGBTQIA plus experience. Did you want to be? <laughs> um, I get, honestly, yes. Mm-hmm. I forget where I read this, but there's, there's a lot of, when you're finally the person you've always wanted to be and or, or at least firmly on that path and you're like achieving what you want to achieve. You're providing to the world what you seek to provide. You've, you're, you're living your truth and authenticity in such a, to such an nth degree that you've never done it before. 
It's so beautiful. But like I said, beautiful beauty goes hand in hand with a lot of other emotions that you might not expect. So it's always this kind of like, it's almost like a mourning of the past because you were not doing that in all the time that led you to where you are, even though that those fights needed to be fought to get you where you are. Um, Cause my sister was kind of like, I, I had a conversation with my sister after she posted it and I was like, this is not cool. Like, and she was like, do you want me to delete it? And I was like, no, now that it's out there, like my option that I'm picking is I am owning this shit 110%, you know? Yes. So, and so I'm now the face of, of it for my community. Mind you, I have like at least some other family members who are definitely part of the LGBTQIA plus community, some of whom have come out to me and opened up to me, but are not ready to do it on a bigger scale with our community at large. Yeah. And that is their prerogative and everything. Like I easily probably would have been them, but my sister put me in a position where I'm me instead. And so this is kind of, um, yeah. And so now I'm doing me search. So I'm, I'm really in this, um, yeah, I'm actively archiving our stories for us by us. And I, and I, yeah, I guess I should dive into talking about the beauty of what that means in my community as well. Um, there are so many people in my community. One of my uncles married a woman from Japan. That was scandalizing. One of my aunties or cousins or whatever, you know how it's always like auntie, cousin, whatever, but she uh, married a man from Spain. One of our, Gasp. yeah, someone, <laughs> one of our family members got divorced. One of my auntie cousins uh, had cancer and her family told her never to speak about her experience with cancer, even though she writes a lot about it and is really vocal about it. But my point being is all these folks who like were asked to not do what they were doing, were asked to silence what they were saying, were asked to hide whatever was going on in their lives. I am starting to identify with them on such a bigger and more beautiful level because there is that connection. Mind you, they're not necessarily queer or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but they are going between binary categories. They're contradicting. They are changing every day. Going back to your point, like they're waking up one day and being one version of themselves, waking up the next day and being another version of themselves. And they're not feeling guilt. They're not feeling shame. They're not feeling fear. They're just doing it. And they're acknowledging their multiplicity. They're being graceful with themselves. And it's been a very beautiful way to to grow roots with my community. Yeah. Now, does that mean I belong? No, because if you ask the homophobic aunties, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like, but do I want to belong? And that's the question I've been kind of like really posing myself. Because if I do, then what does that mean for my freedom? If yeah. I really am just a molecule in this world, does that give me the option of floating around more freely or does it tether me? Absolutely. And so that's kind of the question I'm, I'm asking myself right now. Yeah. And that's and it's a huge one. I think it's interesting, like what you mentioned with those stories, like they they all are told to us as like cautionary tales. I've talked about that before with a girlfriend on the podcast and how these are like things that we should not be right. Like you're told about the woman who gets married to someone outside of the community as like a like and you better not do that. But interestingly, as we go on our journey, those are the people that give us a little bit more data of like, okay, thank God, like they've done it too. like this those become our reinforcing encouragement points, even if to your point, they're not fully encompassing of what you're trying to do or your identity. So one thing I did not want to leave without touching on is when you and I had initially talked, you had talked about um, the politics of inclusion and exclusion, which I thought was really fascinating. And it, it definitely resonated with me, especially in the South Asian community Can you tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that? And especially in the work that you're doing with Brown Girl Mag and Paribar? Totally. Yeah, I mean, so I'm an editor for Brown Girl Magazine. I'm also a project coordinator. I'm a writer. I'm an education consultant. I wear a lot of different hats. Um, and, And so as a result, I think no matter what space you're in, while, and you mentioned it, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, everyone's trying to do that these days. That is automatically... and 
also engaging with politics of exclusion necessarily, because at the point where you're actively including, there's always going to be someone not at the table, um, not having their voice heard. And it might not be deliberate, but it is part of the equation. And so I guess for me, I'm trying to just really figure out what to do with that. The, the way that I've seen it manifest most, most in, in, in a lot of South Asian spaces is centering Hindu, Brahmanical, Indian narratives, upper class, fair skin, English speaking. Heteronormative. Which, <laughs> heteronormative. Yeah, all the things. And so it's a matter of like, and then and send, so suddenly we want to be inclusive. Okay, so now what? We're, we're including, we're expanding outwards. We're, but even that notion of expanding outwards implies or expanding outwards of some type of space. It might be a, the physical space of India, but it might also be a metaphorical space of heteronormativity or whatever it might be. So like, I guess when it comes to this, I, and I, I thought a lot about this when I was doing my research for my thesis with my Bagnari community, it was like, yeah. it's really awkward not being included necessarily or not being wanted to be included by folks who think I'm reckless or who think I'm scandalizing or who think I'm mm. just a youngster who's just like a hippie without like, uh, like goals in my life, or I'm just totally, um, I don't know, sexually deviant or whatever, whatever it is that they think. It's like, there were many moments during my research where I was, I felt exclusion rather than inclusion. Mm. And I was trying to understand more about the Bagnari identity. And there were moments when also there was active inclusion to things that I personally was just like, fuck this, you know, I'll give an example. There's, I have a cousin named Sahil. I have no idea who he is, but he's in the Marines and he was, or like army or something in the U S and he was like the recruitment, like head recruitment person. And he got some award and then someone in our Bagnaris in the WhatsApp group, like, I think it actually might've been his mom or something posted like, Oh my gosh, look at Sahil awarded this award. My sister and I chatted on the side and we were like, gag, like, how the fuck do we have a cousin doing this bullshit? You know, like, fuck the US, fuck the military, fuck killing innocent people. But in my WhatsApp in the America or Bagnari's in the America's WhatsApp group, there were people, mind you, Bagnari's who probably do not, cannot vote in the US, um, commenting things like, God bless America, good for Sahil, or, and not me, like my cousin, whatever, you know? And, yeah. and I was just like, oh, like, yuck, like, like, <laughs> yuck, you know? I was like, I'm related to these people. And, and mind you, I was simultaneously maybe like sometimes posting like, hey, I did this like interview with this artist or, hey, I published this thing on Brown Girl Mag. There were many people who did respond really positively and if I was wearing eyeshadow or earrings or had my nails done or whatever, I don't wear lipstick because it always ends up getting smudged. But like, regardless, like I, I did get positive feedback from a lot of people. I cannot deny that. And that was a beautiful thing. But there's also a lot of silence and silence mm. is exclusionary. We know that in yes. our community. So yes. I guess I guess when it comes to inclusion and exclusion, I think we need to just really individualize that reckoning who am i including today who am i excluding today how can i do a better job tomorrow and not for woke points or tokenization Mm -hmm. but just like because it's the right thing to do and because i'm capable of doing the right thing i think that's so powerful especially in light of what we were even touching on with last summer of this kind of rush to be woke and anti-racist and to your again like hearkening back to also like the unlearning piece you're not then sitting with discomfort and thinking about what do I need to unlearn in order to learn right so I think like to your point like that because you're right like you know even now like especially like in the corporate lens like you know you start to see these like all of a sudden like these newsletters that like have so many black artists and I'm like okay I'm really glad that you decided to start to show up and show more diversity but that's also like in a sense tokenism there's also much more to it even in this podcast i started it initially for indian americans and then i realized oh my gosh like how can i talk about the indian american experience without talking about the south asian american experience but then even the south asian american experience to your point like there are groups that we typically you know stereo like immediately i'll say like in uh, bollywood for example you'll see punjabis gujaratis um south indians always get made fun of um and then you basically don't have anyone else like and then there's always like a plot twist of like Pakistan being like a 
point of contention. Either like the girl has fallen for a Pakistani guy and it's dramatic or it's like a war movie. But how about all the other groups, your own identity that you're talking about, right? Like, I, I feel like I, these are the things that we actually don't realize that we do. And so I love, like, I'm just going to keep saying to myself, the unlearning learning piece that you mentioned, because it's yeah, so and important. It's a, and, and you reckon with it because you're not, per, we're not perfect. We make mistakes and then we just figure out what to do with that, that harm that we created while we're trying to also create something helpful, you know? And so even the South Asian thing, you know, like I've really been having trouble with that. Um, like I, I do love it because it's giving me people that I can communicate with and we can share experiences and identify uh, patterns that we both experienced growing up and whatever it might be. But I don't know, like my ancestors didn't identify as South Asians. And also it's, it's kind of a white centered labeling or, or at least, yeah, a, yeah it, it feels very American exceptionalism. It feels very like Western and I don't really want to be practicing that, but I, I, I think it's any, any hybridized identity is not, and this is another thing that I care about queerness is you're not always just like half and half and in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. You might be around it. You might be like, you might be embodying and occupying a third space, which is outside of the first and second space, you know? And I think that ties back to my Bagnari identities that we always identified as uh, Sindhi Punjabi, Sindhi Punjabi. And then people were like, oh, like, but your last name is Metha. So there were all, always all these questions. And in reality, I was, I've always just been occupying a third space and trying to earn and gain the language that allows for that, for me to convey that. And and as a writer, that's really important to me is identifying accurate language. Absolutely. You know? I respect that. I can see that too. I, I, you know, half the time I'm listening to you, I'm just admiring how you have the right language, <laughs> or even if you don't, the way you frame it and acknowledge that. I just think there's so much beauty in that. And I, I hope that more of us, you know, maybe, you know, because yeah, of course, like I, I won't say all of us might be able to replicate your level of wisdom, but I think like even being able to try to start to use some of that language to be able to express ourselves will be so helpful. Don't say God bless America and we're good, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, like don't do that shit around me. I, uh, Wait, so that's not how I should wrap this episode. <laughs> yeah, please don't, please don't. <laughs> um, Sahil, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. I have one last thing before I let you go because... After this call, I have to do so much like contemplating of life. Like you've taught me so much. I am so appreciative of your time. I honestly, get the chai, toss in some whiskey yes. if need be. Like I, yeah. no one is judging. Like we all we all care for no. you and love you. It's so do great, it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so I have a chip chip round for you. Rapid fire. If you can just answer whatever comes to you first, are you ready? Sure. Who is a celebrity you're totally horny for at the moment? Rihanna. Love. Hollywood <laughs> calls and asks you to pick a year of your life to turn into a movie. Which year of your life would you pick? 2012. I was living in South America oh. then. Shit was reckless. Shit was fun. Oh, beautiful. That's a spicy movie. Yes. It's the year 2050 <laughs> and we can teleport anywhere. What is the first place you'd go to? I want to say Wakanda, but I don't know if I'm invited, so... I would say somewhere near the equator, sea level. Love. When you're burning out, what self-care behavior do you incorporate? I go to my closest Desi grocery store and get a cup of chai. Oh, so comforting. Who is a figure we should all follow right now? Alok Bidmenon. Who is that? Alok. Um, they're a fashionista, artist, writer, um, cultural critic. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> 